Good morning, I'm Pastor Jay. I do invite you to open your Bibles to the passage that Clara read for us, Genesis chapter 37. I was texting with my brother yesterday who is a Baptist pastor in Virginia. Yeah. And I, according, when I hear him pronounce it, it sounds like B-A-B-T-I-S-T, Baptist pastor in Virginia. And uh, anyways, we were texting back and forth, and he was asking me a question, and he said, he said, by the way, I'm preaching on Joseph tomorrow. And I said, really? So I said, so am I. So that was kind of exciting. And then we got a text from our son, who's home on furlough from Pakistan, and he has not been preaching since he got home, but this morning he is preaching in North Carolina. So that was kind of, I sent them both a text and said, Grandpa would be proud. His three child's boys are filling the pulpit today. I said, may we be faithful and accurate and humble ourselves before the Lord. So Genesis 37, we're starting a three-week series. I think in one of the most fascinating men in the Bible, Joseph, some of you know the story well. Some of you know parts of it. If you've ever seen Joseph an amazing Technicolor dream coat, Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical, or some of you I know don't even know the story at all. Um, This is one of the most beloved heroes in the Bible, and he is a man who has a lot to teach all of us, especially if you know the Lord. Interesting how God constantly uses men and women in the Bible to teach, encourage, and warn us today. I mean, who can forget the lives and the lessons from people like David or Esther, or even somebody as heinous and infamous as Jezebel. There's lessons coming out of a life like that, or Job or Ruth or Moses or Deborah or even a Judas or a Peter. These were put in Scripture to teach, to warn, to encourage us. And I can say that in good biblical authority because Paul wrote this in Romans 15.4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And so we know these were included, these stories, to teach and to warn and to encourage us. When you turn to the story of Joseph, it, it sizzles like a page-turning novel. This has all the ingredients in it. It is nothing short of remarkable, occupying about 20% of the entire content of Genesis, more than any other story. So this is a huge chunk of the book of Genesis. It has more space, just more ink, than the stories of Adam or Noah or Abraham or even Joseph's father, Jacob. Interesting that... uh, Jacob's family, which Joseph comes from, literally has to be one of the most dysfunctional, broken, toxic families in the Bible. It's just, they're a mess. And yet Joseph emerges from this story, maybe you come out of this kind of a home, probably a lot of us here do, and yet Joseph emerges from this story as somebody who continually turned back to God, we'll see that, but as someone easily we all probably identify with for lots of reasons. Here's a guy who experiences a wide range of things in life, a lot of them painful. He experiences betrayal, broken dreams, uh, pain, injustice, suffering, and constant setbacks. And these go on for years. And yet we find him at the end finishing well. 
And that's why I think it's such an encouraging story. God lifts, I mean, as Joseph trusts him along the way, God lifts him out of the dysfunction, or above it, I should say, and pours out blessing in his life. So I think there's huge encouragement here, especially if we're coming out of broken, dysfunctional homes, for what God is willing to do, can do, promises to do when we trust him. We're going to begin our series this morning with an overview of his life. We're going to look at it from three angles. You have it in your outline here in your bulletin. Joseph's favored status. In fact, the title of the message this morning, Joseph's favored son, hated brother. So we're going to look at his favored status and the whole sin of favoritism when you're parenting, which is a very easy sin to slip into, and it's deadly, and it's toxic. And then next, Joseph's dreams, and then his suffering and his responses. That's where we'll spend the bulk of our time on the third point. So if I'm zipping through the first two and you're thinking, wow, plane's going to land early. It's not. <laughs> all right. First of all, Joseph's favored status. The story of Joseph's is found, again, in the first book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis, by the way, is built, structured around four key events and four key people. We know it's written by Moses. We know he wrote the first five books. Called, we call them the Pentateuch. That's not what he called them. But we know it's built around four key events, four key people. The four key events Genesis is built around are creation, fall, fall of mankind into sin, flood, completely changes the geography and the spiritual dynamics of the whole planet, and then the nations. Creation, fall, flood, nations. The nations being the peoples scattered after the Tower of Babel. That's the first, that, those are the four events Genesis is built around, but Genesis is also built around four key people. That's very clear when you look at it. Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph. And so you start with Abraham, and then one of his sons, and then one of his sons, and then one of his sons. So the scope, redemptive scope, keeps narrowing, so to speak, as you go through the book. And the most emphasis put on the last guy, Joseph. Joseph's entire story covers chapters 37 through 50. It starts when he is 17, ends when he's 110. So in our terms, he's a teenager and he dies a glorious old man. With that, let's dive in and meet his family. In chapter 32, we meet his, or we, we don't meet his dad, but we learn something very important about his dad, Jacob. His name is changed from Jacob to Israel after a night of wrestling with the Lord. Israel, meaning something like strives with God, wrestles with God. His name is changed. Now, both names continue to be used, but increasingly Jacob drops off and Israel is used. And Israel has, unfortunately, two wives and two concubines, which in itself added to the whole mess. But he has two wives, Rachel and Leah, and then he has two concubines, Billa and Zilpah, and from them they have 12 children, uh, 12 sons, and at least one daughter. And these 12 sons of Israel, Jacob, their families, their tribes become the 12 tribes of Israel. That's where that all comes from. That brings us to chapter 37, where we meet Joseph. This is one of Rachel's sons. This is an 11th son to Jacob. And we pick up his story and some of the dysfunctionality because of the favoritism in the family. So this is one of the youngest of the sons and the way Jacob treated him, and how this went over with the rest of the tribe, which, as you can imagine, not real well. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. There, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, 
was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Jacob brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, so both names here being used of of, of Jacob. In verse 2, it says these are the generations of Jacob. Verse 3, it refers to him by his new name, Israel. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe. And there's a, not, I'm not quite sure how to translate the Hebrew here. There's a number of different translations that come out in English. Many faceted, many colored, something, some kind of ornamental robe that he made for his son. Interesting, Jacob's parenting here, and the sin of favoritism rises to the surface, and we're told very clearly about it, and he picks it up. He was mentored well in this by his parents. If you go back a couple chapters of Genesis 25, two verses in Genesis 25 show us that Jacob's parents, Isaac and Rebekah, mentored and tutored their sons well in favoritism. Genesis chapter 25, verses 27 to 28. We're back now in time. And Jacob, as you may or may not know, was a twin. He's a twin. He had a twin brother, Esau. Their parents, Isaac and Rebekah. And we're told here in these two verses of a very severe family dysfunction that was passed on. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau, okay, so Esau is an outdoor dude. He loves to hunt. He's a man of the field. Jacob is more the quiet, scholarly guy. Apparently, he dwells in the tents. And then we're told the deadly news. Isaac, he identified with with Esau. He loved Esau because he ate of his game. So, you know, he affirms Esau as the outdoor guy. But Rebekah, she loved Jacob. So those boys, these twin boys grow up seeing this blatant favoritism, passes right on to the next generation, as so many parenting sins do and so many things we do come right from our parents. You know, when you're a teenager, you swear, I'll never be like my mom and dad. And then when you grow up and mature a little bit more, you realize, I became just like my mom and dad. And that's exactly here what happens with Jacob. Jacob treats Joseph with blatant favoritism, creates a ferocious jealousy among the brothers. Back to chapter 37, verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him, him is Joseph. So when, his, when Joseph's brothers, who were all, for the most part, older than him, except for Benjamin, when his brothers saw their father loved him more than his brothers, what's the text say? They hated him. I want to say, of course, Shouldn't say that, but that's the sin, but it's going to precipitate that kind of sibling toxicity. I mean, how can it not? And they could not speak peacefully to him. So favoritism, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. It is a toxic sin. It's a deadly sin. It takes place almost in all families to some degree. It's something we have to watch in ourselves. It is especially prevalent in blended families. And it's just something we have to be very alert to because lots of things come out of favoritism and they're all bad. They're all bad. They're all toxic. And it creates all kinds of toxic things among siblings, but even among the parents. And so if you sense that, it's something clearly to repent 
and fight against. That brings us secondly to Joseph's dreams. Interesting that the word dream or dreams occurs 30 times in the story of Joseph. I bring that up because it's interesting in the Bible, there are words that show up that aren't even on the Western radar screen, Western mind. And in Joseph, two words continually come up in the Joseph narratives from chapter 37 to 50, the word dream or dreams and the word famine. The word famine comes up over almost 20 different times. We don't struggle with famine in the West, so that we, we, we are almost blind when we come across words like dreams because we don't put much stock in them. And then the word famine, but these two are, these, the word dream and famine come out regularly in the Joseph story. Dreams are given to Pharaoh, who's a non-believer, clearly, he thought he was God, but God gives him a dream. He gives a dream to two prisoners, a baker and a cupbearer, and the dominant dreams go to Joseph, and this launches his story. These are in verse, I'm going to start reading in verse 5 down to verse 9, where we're given the two dreams given to him. Now, I want to, I want to say something before I read verses 5 to 9. The text does not say that Joseph shared these dreams out of arrogance or pride. He, he may have, we don't know. It doesn't attribute motive to him. Having said that, when you're the youngest brother, basically the youngest guy in the whole tribe, and you have these kind of dreams, and your brothers already are, let's say, hostile to you, to share these two dreams with your brothers, which he did, I don't know the Hebrew phrase, but something like galactically stupid comes to mind. <laughs> because just as a reminder, when you read this, this was really stupid. This is no offense to teenagers, but this is a real, this is a real teenage mistake here to share this with older brothers. He, he should have been quiet because it's clear God gave him these dreams and they were fulfilled. We know that. But his timing and sharing these with his brothers, not real good. So Joseph has a dream, verse 5, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. That should have signaled to Joseph, keep my mouth shut. He said to them, hear this dream that I, I've had. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and your sheaves gathered around it, and what does it say? <laughs> your sheaves all bowed down to mine. Yeah. His brothers said to him, I'm sure this is putting it mildly, are you indeed going to reign over us or rule over us? And they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And he had another dream and told it to his brothers. I mean, like I said, galactically stupid. And he said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars are bowing down to me. And when he told it to his brother, father and brother, even his dad, that's interesting, even his dad who favored him rebuked him said, what is this dream you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And I'm not going to go a whole lot further. We don't put a lot of stock typically in the evangelical world, the evangelical church. We laugh about some of the weird dreams we have, but we generally don't put a lot of stock. But it's interesting talking to believers in other countries, other continents. They do. I've shared before. It's been a while, but I'll share this because I this I share this because it jolted me so much. I was in graduate school taking a course in West African Islam. That's a bit of a narrow niche, but... Uh, and my professor for that particular course in grad school was from Africa. He was from Burkina Faso and had pastored there for some time. 
And at one point in the class, it was a very small doctoral seminar thing. It was like only a handful of us in there. But at one point he shared, he said, you know, when I was pastoring in Burkina at one point for several years before I entered the scholarly world, he said, I spent, he said, I spent half my time pastorally helping congregants interpret their dreams. And I remember sitting there thinking, I've never helped anybody interpret their dreams. At that point, I'd been in ministry for a number of years, and I thought, that's weird. That's interesting. Since then, I have heard of many more similar situations, and actually, I've had a couple people come to me, and I've helped them interpret their dreams, the best of my ability, through prayer. So, I just bring this up to say this is not on the Western evangelical radar screen, but it is something in Scripture, and it is something that still is very common in other countries of the world. And this is, and dreams play a huge part in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. You'd be surprised if your radar is how many times the word dream comes up. I had a pastor friend a few years ago that I highly respect who said that at a very significant point in his ministry, a dream had a huge impact on which way he went, and it turned out to be accurate. So, Joseph's dreams. All right, this brings us to the bulk of the sermon this morning, and that is this, Joseph's sufferings and his responses. And ladies and gentlemen, young people, especially young people, kids, teenagers, young people, college kids, I want to draw your attention to this because if we learn well from Joseph's life, it will save us a lot of grief because he responded well when affliction, suffering, injustice, and betrayal came his way. And so I want us to see that. We're going to look at two painful events that happened to him and his response We'll take a deeper dive into that, the, these responses in the next few weeks. But the two events we're going to look at this morning are, one, the betrayal from his family, which was severe, and secondly, seduced, framed, and forgotten once he got to Egypt. So let's dive in, first of all. We're going to be in chapter 37 now, starting in verse 12. First painful event is this betrayal by his family. He faced one of the most painful things you could face anywhere. Some of us here this morning are in the middle of something like this or we've been through something like this, but it's family betrayal. Intentional, malicious family betrayal. Could be from a mom or dad, a sibling, a parent, a child. Could be from a close relative, an aunt, uncle. But somebody close to you went out of their way deliberately to go after you and betray you. This was due to his brother's intense hatred, and they devised a plan to betray and kill him. Pick up the story, verse 12. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Shechem is north of Jerusalem, just south of the Sea of Galilee. So you're right about in central smack, right in the middle of central Israel there. Israel said to Joseph, so Jacob says to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing their flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said and he, Joseph, says to him, well, here I, here I am. Here I am. So he said, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock. Bring me back word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and Joseph goes to Shechem. Now start, drop down to verse 18. They, the brothers, saw him from afar, and before they came near to them, he came near to them, they, they already were conspiring to kill him. Not just betray him here, to kill him. To kill him. And they said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. 
come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these pits. And they will, they will make up a story that some animal devoured him and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. I mean, it's dripping with hatred, it's dripping with sarcasm, it's dripping with all kinds of uh, evil. Now, verse 23. When, the brothers, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, robe of many colors that he wore. They took him, threw him in a pit. pit was empty and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat. And they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. Some translations say Midianites, which was a broad grouping of peoples that were to the east of Israel. They could range anywhere from modern-day Jordan down to modern-day Saudi Arabia. So basically of the Arabian desert from an area called Gilead. Coming from Gilead, their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh on their way down to Egypt. Joseph said, and Judah said to his brothers, what's, what's the profit if we kill him? and conceal his blood. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. And he is our brother in our own flesh, and his brother listened to him. So very interesting what goes on here. By the way, slave trading on the Arabian Peninsula, where this was, was extremely common. Slave trading was common all over the world, obviously, and sadly has continued uh, in the, on the Arabian Peninsula, for example, uh, technically slavery only became outlawed in Saudi Arabia and Yemen in 1962. Not that long ago. So this stuff went on all over the world. All right, I want to I put a pause right here. The story is horrific on, on, on so many levels. I want to bring up that. Here's the bottom line. Anytime you face injustice, anytime you face undue suffering, Anytime you face betrayal, like Joseph here, anytime you face abuse or being taken advantage of or wrongly blamed, you and I have a very critical decision at that point. And that decision is this, am I going to get bitter and am I going to nurse a grudge or worse, plot something evil or am I going to forgive and trust God? And here's a little backdrop to that. How I choose to respond to injustice in my life, betrayal, cruelty, you name it, how I respond is simply a window into how I think about God and my relationship with Him. That's what it shows the most. When someone is coming, and I, Becky and I have had this, most of you have had that, somebody's come after one of us or both of us over the years of ministry, been cruel, been vicious. How I end up responding, how in, you end up responding when someone does it to you, all it's showing is what you really think about God, your response, and what your relationship is with God. If anyone had a cause to be bitter, ladies and gentlemen, young people, it was Joe. I mean, talk about a mess. Betrayed, lied about, sold into slavery. And yet, what is very clear or what's missing from all of this, there is a remarkable absence of bitterness in Joseph. It's not recorded. In fact, when you get to the end of the story, in fact, we'll go there for just a minute, chapter 50. If you turn there, last chapter of Genesis, by this time, Joseph has been elevated and he is now second only to Pharaoh in power, which means because Egypt at this point is the dominant empire in the world. At this point, chapter 50, Joseph, as far as we can tell, 
is the second most powerful man on the planet. Talk about from the pit to the pinnacle. Be a good sermon title. There you go. And what's interesting is Joseph does three things in this last chapter after being betrayed, and then his brother. Years go by, and he goes to prison. We're going to get that in a minute. And, he, and then he's elevated, and he becomes the second most powerful man in the world. And then his brothers are revealed to him, or he's revealed to his brothers in this last chapter, this last section. And Joseph does three things that show this remarkable lack of bitterness in his life. This, I have to say, as I've been working on this, this, this last chunk is what convicted me the most. And I kept feeling the poke of the Holy Spirit, making sure my accounts are clear in my life from people who have betrayed me. I had, in fact, this week's blog... Uh, which is on the bottom of your sermon page, is on how do you handle betrayal? When Joseph's brothers, verse 15, saw that their father was dead, so Jacob's dead, the brothers are standing before Joseph, he's now the second most powerful man in the world, they've just been revealed to him, they're in Egypt, all he has to do is snap his fingers and they're dead. They said, it may, it may be, it may be Joseph's going to hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. Interesting, the, the Bible never downplays that what they did to him was evil. Never downplays it. Nor does Joseph. Joseph never tries to say, oh, I know, it wasn't a big deal. He never does that. Nor does the Bible. The Bible's very clear. What they did was evil. Pure and simple. It calls it that. Verse 16, so they sent a message to Joseph. Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil. There it is again, to you. So they even acknowledge what they did was evil. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God your Father. What is Joseph's first response? Joseph wept when they talked to him. His brothers came, verse 18, and fell down before him. And said, Behold, we are your servants. Right there, ladies and gentlemen, young people, kid, there's the fulfillment of the dream when he was 17 years old. Right there. But Joseph said to them, verse 19, let's note his words Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, we're going to spend more on this next message. You meant evil against me. God meant it, same Hebrew verb, for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So don't fear, for God will provide for you and your little ones. And I love the last sentence. He spoke kindly. He comforted them. There's not just no bitterness. There's no hint of bitterness here. He forgives his brothers. He affirms God's sovereign control in the whole process and announces God's goodness. It's a beautiful example of Jesus forgiving his betrayers on the cross. All right, this brings us to the second major painful thing in his life. We're only going to look at the two things, betrayed by his family and all of that and sold into slavery, and yet his complete forgiveness. We're going to spend a whole sermon on that. The second major thing that happened to Joseph is called seduced, framed, and forgotten. Back to chapter 39. This is back now when he is, has been sold into slavery. 
and he ends up in a wealthy government official's home as some sort of a slave servant. The official's name is Potiphar. And over time, jo- Joseph proves himself to be a man of great integrity, and that's shown here. 39 verses 1 to 4. Now, Joseph was brought down to Egypt. So, he, this is just after being betrayed and sold as a slave. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. But the Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him. And Yahweh caused all he did to succeed in his hand. And Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he, Pharaoh, made him overseer of his whole house and put in charge all that he had. But, here's the problem. We learn Pharaoh's, uh, Potiphar's wife uh, begins to hit on Joseph and try to seduce him sexually. And so starting in verse 9, I'm going to pick up the story. We're told Joseph was a handsome young man. At the end of verse 6, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Potiphar probably is gone a lot. He's a busy government official. Verse 9, his wife begins to seduce him. Verse 9, is he not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you? This is Joseph talking to the wife. Because you're his wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God and give in to her sexual seductions? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her or even be with her or lay beside her. That's a That is a man of integrity, integrity. But one day, when he went to the house to do his work, none of the men of the house were in the house. Verse 12, she caught him this time by the garment saying, come to bed with me, come lay with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled to get out of the house. Young people, that's how you avoid sexual sin. You don't play with it. You don't toy with it, especially on the internet. You flee from it. And if your boyfriend or girlfriend is encouraging sexual activity, you say no. And you quit dating that person and you flee. He left her and got away. Verse 13. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she concocts a plan. She called to the men of her household and said, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in, so she accuses him of seduction, basically of raping. She accuses him of potential rape with me, and I cried out in a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment here and he ran out. And she laid up his garment by her until the master came home. That's her phrase for Potiphar. And she told him the same story, saying, hey, that Hebrew slave you brought, He came in here to laugh at me. And as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and he fled out of the house. 
And it's interesting that Potiphar believed his wife, even knowing what kind of a woman she was, even knowing what kind of a servant Joseph was. As soon as the master heard the words his wife spoke, he clearly believes her and his anger is kindled against Joseph and he has Joseph thrown in prison. That's the bottom line. Look it. Joseph's story is just one disastrous event after another from our perspective. Injustice piled on injustice, piled on injustice. Now he's lied and framed again and lied about and framed again, and this time he goes to prison. From a human perspective, this is what's key. Injustice lingered on and went unresolved for years in his life. It just kept going and going, and even more pain was on its way for him as he's in prison. He helps two fellow prisoners. If you go to chapter 40, one of them is a chief wine taster, one of them is the chief baker, and they were given dreams, but they didn't understand them, and Joseph helps them figure them out. Here, I want to point out something at this point. Joseph, far from turning his back on God in the midst of all this pain and injustice over the years, he actually turns to God for help with these men's dreams. So we still see Joseph putting his trust and turning to God for help. There's no hint that Joseph turned away from God in the midst of tremendous suffering and injustice. At the hand of God, he isn't turning against God. So, for example, verse 8, we read this. They said to him, we've had dreams. This is the chief baker and the chief cupbearer for Pharaoh. These, I mean, these are high-level dudes. We've had dreams. They're in prison, and there's no one to interpret. And Joseph said, don't interpretations belong to God? Here he is after years of this, and he still points them to God. And he gives them accurate interpretations, which was a bummer for the chief baker because the dream he got was that he would be executed in a couple days, and it's exactly what happened. The dream that the wine taster got was he would be released in a couple days, and that is exactly what happened. And Joseph makes the requests of the cupbearer, verse 14. And I bring this up just to show more injustice, more pain, more betrayal. Joseph says to the chief cupbearer, who's going to be released in just a couple days, go back to his high-level position. Joseph says, uh, remember me when it's all well with you, and please do me a favor. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this place, out of this house, this prison. And you come to verse 23, to the, one of the saddest verses in this section. Last verse, chapter 40, verse 23. The cupbearer, he gets out, he goes back to his position. The cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but what? He forgot him. He forgot him. He just forgot him. And how long did Joseph continue on in prison? Look at the next phrase, first part of verse 1 of chapter 41. After two more years. So at least for two more years, Joseph languished in prison, seduced, framed, lied about again, betrayed again, forgotten. And yet when it was all over, we find Joseph amazingly affirming God's hand of planning in the entire situation. Go to chapter 45, and you will find one of two passages, just like in chapter 50 where he affirms very similar things. Chapter 45, there's a paragraph here, 
that is one of the most remarkable paragraphs in the entire Joseph narrative from chapter 37 to 50, affirming God's hand of providence and goodness. It's been years of injustice, mounted on injustice, lies upon lies, betrayal from the hand of God. And you get to chapter 45, verses 4 to 8. Joseph said to his brothers, now you fast forward, he has now become second in command in Egypt. The brothers are brought before him. and They're down in Egypt. Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. Obviously, they didn't know their brother spoke Egyptian because he didn't when he left. <laughs> it's been a number of years. They don't recognize him. Even It's interesting, he even used a translator at first. He didn't need a translator, but he used one at first so that they didn't understand that he could understand Hebrew. But that's all been dismissed now. Verse 5, imagine their shock and terror realizing that this is their little brother that they betrayed, who's now the second most powerful man in the world. They're standing there. And yet, I want you to notice between verses 5 and 8 how Joseph frames all of this. This is, this is so key. He said, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. He never said what you did is, wasn't bad. He very clear. He never downplays their evil. But notice the next phrase. For it was God who sent me here to preserve life. Don't be upset with yourselves that you sold me because it was God who sent me here. That's only the first time. The word sent occurs three times in the Hebrew in just a couple verses. For the famine has been in these lands two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing or harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for many survivors. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. Third time, three times in the Hebrew text. And he has made me a father of Pharaoh, the Lord of his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. What's the message? Here's the message. God is the one who deliberately planned orchestrated and led Joseph's experiences from his days as a teenager. God is the one who sent him into this whole multi-yeared, extremely painful set of experiences that led to his family being rescued ultimately. It was God. Joseph doesn't downplay it at all. He says, in other words, despite years of cruelty, years of betrayal, years of injustice in his life, Joseph here is telling his brothers very clearly, it was God who did this. It was God who did this to me. It was God who did this to our family, and he's good. And we see him affirming God's goodness more clearly in Genesis 50, but here the implication is very strongly, God knows exactly what he's doing. So let me, let me say what he's not saying, because this is the soft version that gets kind of adopted in a lot of evangelical lingo. The soft version is this. Well, the Lord used all these events in his life and made something good out of it. A little bit like, you know, I go to a counselor and go, look at all this bad stuff that happens to me. And he says, well, let's see what we can do with it all because, you know, we can fix it maybe. The text does not say that. It doesn't say God, you, it doesn't say that Joseph used a whole series of events or God used some unfortunate events. It says God is the one who planned it, led it, and directed the entire process. It was God who sent him, God who sent me, God who sent me. 
And he clearly did so for Joseph's good, for the good of the Hebrew people, and for God's glory. When we were doing our series in Ecclesiastes a while ago, this, earlier this year, I quoted the Puritan preacher Thomas Boston at one point in his book, The Crook and the Lot. He wrote the book after the death of several of his children. He lost a number of kids. I can't remember which child it was after it died. But after several of them had died, he wrote Crook and the Lot. It was actually a sermon series and he preached and then it became the book. The subtitle of the book, listen to this, because it dovetails exactly with what Joseph's saying here. The sovereignty and wisdom of God displayed in the afflictions of men. The sovereignty and wisdom of God displayed in the afflictions of men. And then we have this tight-knit paragraph that's just gold. So here's Thomas Boston who is speaking out of great pain after losing several young children to death. Pastoring on in the pain. And he offers this godly wisdom to any true born-again Christian who is suffering today. Listen to this. If you would be quieted and satisfied in your affliction, that means to be at peace with it. Lift up your eyes to heaven and see God in it. The moving of His hand. Look at it and look at it well. Remembering that God is the cause of the crook in your lot. And behold how it is the work of God and His doing. And you might say, well, how does that give hope thinking God is the one who wounded me? That is the hope because He is all-powerful. He's in charge of the details and He's good. Just like a skilled good surgeon is going to inflict pain, but he's doing it for a much higher cause and you can trust him. One last thing and before we land the plane, a lot of people have noticed, a lot of Bible students and scholars have noted that there's a lot of similarities between Joseph and Jesus. The Bible doesn't draw hard and fast lines, but there are a lot of them. Let me just throw up a few for your consideration. Both are mocked by their families. Both are betrayed. Both are stripped of their robe. Both are falsely accused. Both are sold for pieces of silver. Both are turned over to the Gentiles. Both are exalted after brutal humiliation, and both publicly forgive their betrayers. I was reading one writer this week who I thought summarized the comparisons beautifully because we do know the Old Testament points to Jesus constantly. He said, when you look at the details of Joseph's life, we see the glorious reflection of yet another life we're familiar with in the Bible. This is not because Joseph was somehow Jesus' favorite Bible hero that he wanted to imitate. It's because God is sovereign and He has been laying the tracks for the glory of Christ throughout redemptive history. So that was a great way to sum it up. All right. Closing question before we sing. You're here this morning, you're in the midst of suffering, or you have scars from the past of injustice, betrayal, pain, suffering, or you will be going through it soon enough. How do you deal with disappointment and setbacks and suffering from the hand of God. And let me say four things and we'll close. One, it's essential you're a born-again Christian and the Holy Spirit's alive in you or you will not have the power to bring to bear on this in the best way. Number two, follow Jesus' example. That's what I'm called to do. And trust that God is in full control no matter whether He is bringing pain 
or pleasure into my life and realize that in that is the hope that he is in charge. It's not just the devil. All prosperity preachers always want to say, the devil is the one that causes all the suffering. Or we live in a messed up world, that's the problem. So let God do the best he can and bring. That is not how scripture presents it, and that's not how the Puritans presented it. Thirdly, believe the Bible's teaching that God is good all the time. Scripture is abundant in that testimony, especially the Psalms, just declaring the goodness of God. And works all things to the good for those who love God. And lastly, choose to forgive. If you've been bitter towards God, then you need to repent and ask forgiveness for that. If you've been bitter towards others, to repent. Because, ladies and gentlemen, young people, the only alternative is that bitterness will take over you and it will poison your soul. And it never stays confined to one relationship, by the way. Bitterness always metastasizes. It's like cancer. It will start with that one relationship, but pretty soon it will begin to infect every area of your life. And Joseph's story is a remarkable example of how not to respond to massive injustice. Father, thank you for the story of Joseph and that he comes from such a messed up, toxic, dysfunctional family. May that give hope to a lot of us here who come out of very similar situations. Hear our prayer as we lift our voice in this final song and help us, O God, to respond like Joseph. And if we're not yet born again, may today be the day we come to Christ as Savior. In His name, amen.